Well, like I said, our first Sunday, we talked about who is God, and we talked about who is Jesus, and today we're going to talk about who are we as Christians. Who are you? Who am I? It's not a question we're often confronted with. It's a lot deeper than how are you? It's a lot deeper than what do you do for a living? Can you imagine sitting down in a waiting room with someone and <coughs> striking up a conversation and eventually turning and saying, who are you? What do you mean? How would you even answer that? It's not something we're confronted with very often. How many of you have seen, you don't have to raise your hands, but any of the Jason Bourne movies, The Bourne Identity, The Bourne Supremacy, all those things. I read the books. They actually come from books. Some of us have seen these. The story starts, and there's this guy floating in the ocean with bullet holes in his back. And a ship picks him up, and he wakes up, and he has no idea who he is. He has amnesia. He has no idea who he is. All he knows is that he has bullet holes in his back. There are people who seem to be after him. And he has this incredible instinct and training to be able to defend himself or to be able to drive a car insanely fast through narrow European streets. That's all he knows. So when he, somebody confronts him, he doesn't know if he should shake his hand or karate chop him in the neck. He has no idea who he is or what to do. Just like that, we have to know who we are to know how to live or how to act. It's very important. So this is our third step in this foundational series that we're doing, trying to rediscover our identity. And I'm really excited about it. So the question we're tackling, who does the Bible say we are as Christians? So we've already established in previous Sundays that we as Christians were made Christians, created by God for His glory. We've established that as Christians, we are spiritually alive through Christ. He's our only source of life. We've established these things. So we're going to turn our attention to this facet. I'd like to read our passage once more. If you'll follow along with me, it's very important to see the word as well as hear it. I think it really helps to take it in. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. And this is our focal passage for the day that I'm hoping to explain clearly to you. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Wow, now that was a lot to take in. Paul's letters are so dense with truth and important points. It's so hard to take in, but I really pray that after this service, we'll have a clear understanding of this passage and what it means for our life. And a good place to start would be with the context. The context helps us understand who's writing, who's he writing to, what's the reason that he's writing. This book is a letter written by Paul. We've heard of Paul. Paul was at one time a very religious Jew, very well-educated, very prestigious religious Jew who was passionate about persecuting Christians. In other words, Paul was a religious Jew that had a passion for Seeking out, finding Christians and harassing them for their faith in Jesus. Because to him it was some sort of cult. Some weird thing. Some false thing. That's who he was. Then one day, 
God mercifully opened Paul's eyes to the truth of who Jesus was. He saw Jesus for who he was. Remember last week we said if you knew who he was, you would come to him for the life-giving water. Paul was blessed with knowing who Jesus was, so he came to him for the life-giving water. And this would have seemed about as unlikely as Osama bin Laden accepting Christ. And in fact, many of the Christians did not believe it. When Paul came to try to teach and fellowship with the Christians, a lot of them would run. They would not want to be with Paul because they didn't believe it. He was too passionate, too passionately against Christians to trust. But his identity had changed. According to God's amazing plan, it changed and he became one of the pillars of the church. And he received the same treatment that he dealt out. He was beaten, thrown in prison, and all these things for his faith. So after he became a Christian, he started traveling around to different cities. And he would travel with the purpose of bringing God's word and teaching them about Jesus. One of the cities he traveled to was the city of Corinth. That's where we get the title of our book here, Second Corinthians. That's what they call the people of Corinth. So he traveled to the city of Corinth. It was a very important city. It was a very prosperous city. A lot of trade going on. It was also a city that was very well known for gross immorality. Paul lists the things Corinthians were known for. They were known for fornication, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, theft, covetousness, drunkenness, and swindling. And just a brief aside here, note that homosexuality is in a list of things that are clearly sinful. Many people will try to say that the Bible does not teach that homosexuality is sinful. This isn't the purpose of my sermon, but I thought since we're breezing past this point in Scripture, I should point out. When you see it mentioned, it's within a list of things that are clearly sinful. Okay, we're not going to go down that road this morning, but I do want to point that out to you. Something for you to know. These are the things that characterize the Corinthians to such a point that they even morph the word Corinth into a new word to mean these things, to Corinthianize. I know that sounds like something I just made up, but it's true. They use the word Corinthianize to basically indicate that something was becoming extremely immoral. They were that well known for. So keep that in mind as we move forward. His audience were Corinthian Christians who came from that background. Okay? There were people who lived in that manner, the fornication, idolatry, etc. So this letter is one of several letters that Paul wrote to this church after he left. He went there, he established a church, and then he moved on, but he kept correspondence with them. This is one of his many letters. We only have two letters in the Bible, but there were others that he wrote as well. But by God's design, we have these two in the Bible. So sometime after Paul left Corinth, false teachers came in. We don't know exactly what they were teaching. But Paul's flock, the ones that he came and cared for, saw come to Christ, he left and some other men came in teaching something contrary to what Paul taught. So obviously this was very concerning to him. So he went to check it out. And things had gotten so bad that his people turned on him. His people said, forget you, Paul. We've got these guys now. They're teaching something different. And quite frankly, we think they know what they're talking about and you don't. How discouraging that must have been. That would be like like Harold was here. And he worked so hard. And then he left and found out that everybody's turned away from everything he taught and started following some Buddhist monk that came in or something. You know, I don't know. I don't know what. We don't know exactly what they were teaching. 
But it was contrary to God's word that Paul brought. So he was very distressed. So we see in another book that he wrote them a letter, not this one, but it's referred to as the severe letter. He wrote some letter that must have been pretty severe that actually brought about a lot of repentance from the people at Corinth. So he was happy to hear that. Then he wrote this letter. So all that context stuff to say that this is a letter he wrote after all that history with these people at Corinth. It's a very personal letter. He's writing basically to try to reestablish his identity as someone who is a Christian. To reestablish his identity as someone who has authority as an apostle to these people who had strayed. So that's where we're at. That's what we're reading right now. And we're about midway through the letter at the passage that we're referring to. Now note that the first word there is a therefore. Remember what we said about therefore. You have to check out what it's there for. And Paul builds his argument like this all the time. He builds his argument like a Lego tower. It's big major point, therefore another major point, therefore another major point, therefore another major point. And his whole, all his letters flow that way. So you have to look back and see, well, what's he building this off of? So let's take just a real quick moment to look at the previous paragraph. I really think it's going to help us understand that really complex bit of scripture that I read. Look back at verse 12. He says, We are not, again, commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Basically saying, look at my heart. Don't just listen to the words of people who appear to know what they're talking about. Look at the heart. He says that you have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Examine the heart. And you'll find someone's true identity. Because we can look like all kinds of different things. Whatever we want to look like. But if you look at the heart, you'll find our true identity. And he's urging them, pleading them to just keep looking at the heart. And if you do, you'll see that I, Paul, am genuine. And what I have to say is genuine. It's from God's word. I want you to hear this message. So look at the heart. He wants them to feel confident that his heart is in the right place. Not so that he can look good but so that he can convey the message that God's laid on him for them to hear. So that's, that's where he's coming from. That's his passion while he's writing this. Let's read 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So what he's saying is, look at the heart, when you look at who to follow or who to believe, and when you think about how to be as a Christian, think about the heart. Think about these things. It's not really very clear exactly what they were teaching that was different from Paul, these false teachers. But I think it's reasonable to infer that the Corinthian Christians saw these men and thought of them as they look like they know more than Paul. They sound really good and eloquent. Like they must know more than Paul. Paul is saying, just don't, don't just take that. Look at their heart and see if they fit this criteria in 14 and 15 here. Do they seem to be living for themselves or for Christ? He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. It's most likely that these people seem to have a lot of maturity and a lot of wisdom and very eloquent speech. 
And that's probably what confused the Corinthians and Christians. And that may be how you think Paul must have seemed. What do you think Paul was like? Do you think he was he had this air of just great eloquence and wisdom about him all the time? Let's look at how he described himself. Flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'd like for you to flip there if you have a Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians chapter two, starting at verse one. This is Paul also talking to the Corinthians. First Corinthians two, verse one. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, when I've always pictured Paul, I picture him being this probably tall, older man with wisdom just written into all the, the wrinkles on his face and the flow of his beard. And I picture him that way, and I also think, well, that must be what we need to aspire to just appear like. But how shocking it is to read that Paul wasn't like that. <clears throat> Paul came to them in weakness and in trembling, and not with persuasive words of wisdom. The way he came, all they could see was God's power, not Paul's power. And that's what he's saying to these people. Look at the heart. Don't look at how persuasive they seem and eloquent they seem. Look at their hearts. Paul didn't speak excellently with a lot of uppity, highfalutin fanciness. He was with them in weakness and fear. I just find that very interesting. It's very interesting for me in my position especially. But this is why the Corinthian Christians were confused. They had been with Paul. They remembered what he was like. But now there's these people that come in and they, they just look like they're, they've got it all together. They forget their first concept of what Christians ought to be like. Meek, humble, simple. And they see this impressive, eloquent, charming presence. And they think, well, mm, who are you going to believe here? We'll go with these guys. They seem to have it all together. And this is what Paul is combating. You can't look at the outside. You have to look at the heart. Okay, now we're at our passage. Back to 2 Corinthians. Chapter 5. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 16. Because of all this, that's what the therefore is there for. Because of all this, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him in this way no longer. So because of all this, we don't recognize people for what they are because of what they look like. We don't even look at that anymore because of all these truths. We look deeper. You know, at one time we knew Christ in the flesh. Now we know him spiritually. He's not here in the flesh anymore. We have to look at each other's spirit to judge you know, who's who. Who's a real Christian? Who's not? Who should we follow as a leader? Who should we not? I lost my place here. <clears throat> Paul says, how can you know if you're dealing with a genuine Christian? Oh wait, I'm just getting ahead of myself. I'm sorry, I'm not... I think I'm getting sick or something here. <laughs> Bear with me. I did a lot of moving this weekend. It's taking its toll. Scott predicted that it might. <laughs> so he says, We recognize no one according to the flesh. 
That's where we are. And I think we, like the Corinthians, still get confused about what Christians should look like, what a Christian's identity should be. And that's why we we picked this topic for today. We think that Christians are the ones who should have it all together. So that's what we aspire to look like. We need to look like people who have it all together because that's what Christians should look like. We think that Christians should be the ones who have all the wisdom and know it all. So that's what we aspire to talk like. We try to talk as though we're the wise ones, that we know it all. And if we keep reading, Paul says that's not the criteria. Verse 17 is a very familiar verse. Therefore, again, what's that therefore? Therefore, it's because of all this we've been talking about, about identity. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Don't judge according to the flesh. Look at the heart. Because this is how you'll know. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. A new creature. Now surely that's recognizable. If they're confused which one of these people are the the true Christians, the true leaders they should follow, and they're having a hard time, surely you can recognize someone who's a new creature. Surely you can recognize a butterfly versus a caterpillar as opposed to different species of caterpillars. It's easy to recognize a new creature. Not better old creatures, new creatures. This is the key difference, the key thing we need to get. From this, we're not meant to be better old creatures. We're new creatures if we're in Christ. Being a Christian is not about reforming our same old ways. Being a Christian is not about reforming our same old ways. It's about transformation, becoming a new creature. It's not the same mat but nicer. It's not the same mat but more gentle. Not the same mat with less lust, less envy. Less profanity, less hatred. It's a new man, a new creature. Let that sink in for a minute. Totally new creatures. I had a professor in college named Dr. Cohen. I really liked him. He was a really older gentleman, but he played tennis, which I played tennis, and he, we played tennis together actually some. And he was just kind of a crotchety old man. You know, he wasn't much fun really, and he, he, he was kind of gruff. But he knew God's word. He taught Greek. So he knew the original language. And he actually published a book, which everybody was surprised because he just didn't seem like the type that would be publishing books. But he published a book, and it was the most dry book you can imagine. It was called <laughs> Greek Word Studies About Salvation. I think that was the title. How creative is that? <laughs> Greek Word Studies About the New Testament, or about salvation. I can't remember. I have it. Actually, he signed it for me, which I thought was funny, too. And I really don't know looked at it. I looked at it that day. This was one of my first years in college. And I looked at it. I was like, man, I'm there. This, is, this looks so boring. I'm not reading this. But it occurred to me when I was preparing to this that maybe he did some sort of word study on this new creature bit. So I looked it up. And sure enough, it was very helpful for me to understand. And I just have this one quote from him in there. He says, Reformation of the old person is inadequate to save. The old person must be destroyed. And a new one created. Man, now that is something particular to Christianity. That is something that will confront people in this world. That Christians aren't all about, you got to do better. you got to be nicer. 
You need to go to church. We're about a drastically major change in life, a transition in your whole, who you are, becoming a whole new creature. It won't do to act like a butterfly. It doesn't work. You have to be transformed into a butterfly. Not updated, improved, old creatures. We're in a way created totally new in Christ when we accept Him as Lord and Savior. And this is nothing that we can muster on our own. That's why it's so hard for us to get it. We can't, on our own willpower, become new creatures. We can't do it. We rely desperately on God for this. And that's just contrary to our whole nature. We want to do it. You know, I can stop smoking, but I can't make myself into a new creature. Only God can do that. It's like that same professor wrote, human beings can make things, but only God can create things. Human beings can make things, but only God can create things. He created all this out of nothing. And how fitting it is, how like God, to when we accept Christ and become Christians, to create us all anew again. Something that's just we cannot do. So who are we as Christians? We are new creatures. Not nice people, not moral people. New Christians. Let me read C.S. Lewis's treatment of this for you. For mere improvement is not redemption. Though redemption always improves people, even here and now and will, in the end, improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once it has its wings, it will soar over fences, which it never would have been able to jump in the past, and thus beat the natural horses at their own game. That's what it's like. It's not teaching a horse to jump better or higher. It's turning a horse into a winged creature. How, this is so difficult for us to get. So hard for us to get this and to take it in and to live according to it. We as Christians are new creatures. That's our identity. Who are you as a Christian? You're a new creature. It's a transformation that signals the passing of old things. Read the bottom half of 17 there. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have come new. Remember, Paul was passionately against Jesus and Christians. And he devoted his life to harassing them and defining them and to giving them a hard time. And he was pretty puffed up with his education. He was very well educated. But then God came and made him into a new creature. And those old things passed away. Now he's passionately devoted to Christ. And he has to do so humbly. Forgetting about all his education and all the prestige that comes from that. That stuff's passed away. Something new is here. Devotion to Christ. These Corinthian Christians he's writing to. Remember, they were the ones that lived this lifestyle of fornication and homosexuality and idolatry and swindling and all these terrible things. All that's passed away to them now. They're new creatures. They don't have to do those things anymore. New creatures. They're not just a little less into idolatry than they were. They're not just a little less into fornication than they were. That stuff is dead to them now. They're new creatures. 
Now, there's three types of people who are hearing this message in this sanctuary this morning. There are those of you who have accepted Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. And you know what I'm talking about. You've experienced this transformation into a new creation. And you're living according to that truth. You're living according to the truth that you don't have to do the old things anymore. They may seem tempting from time to time, but you don't have to do those anymore. That's gone. New things are here. And you're living according to that. And you're experiencing the joy and the peace that comes from it. That's one type of person that's in here this morning. Another type of person is someone who has accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. And has become a new creature. But is really struggling to learn how to live in accordance to that truth. You're a new creature. You don't have to do the old things. You've been given wings. New things are here. But you're still not really sure how to fly. You're still not really sure how to do this thing. You're still living like the old creature because you just don't understand all the promises and all the abilities that come with being a new creation. Maybe that's you this morning. Third type of person, those who've never quite understood this whole Jesus thing. They've heard it a lot, or maybe they haven't heard it a lot, but they just never quite understood what all this is about. But you're intrigued. And maybe this is a little different from what you thought Jesus was about. Maybe you thought he was about reforming the old person, and you didn't realize that he offers a total transformation. You didn't realize that he offers life. You're one of those three people, I imagine, this morning. So what does all this mean for you as one of these three people? First, it means don't try to be like a Christian. Caterpillar shouldn't try to be like a butterfly because it's not going to work. Don't try to look like a Christian. Seek your maker and plead to be created, recreated, a new creation. Don't try to look like a Christian. Secondly, don't have false expectations of your fellow Christians, your ministers, or yourself about what they ought to look like or what they ought to sound like. We're all just a group of desperate people. I mean, sure, I'm standing up here and I'm wearing a suit and I have this mic on my face, but I'm, we're all in this together. We're just a bunch of desperate people. Desperate people lost in our sin and our confusion totally in need of a merciful God to come down and do something that we cannot do for ourselves. Make us into new creatures. And we can rest in that. We can stop trying so hard to put on the appearance. And we can rest in the fact that we're either new creatures or we're not. But there's no point in trying to look and act like a Christian. Does no one any good. And what a poignant point for me in my position. You know, I'm tempted all day long to look and sound pastoral. You know, I'm this 26-year-old guy who God, through his mysterious, merciful plan, has put me here in a position to preach his word and to minister and serve you guys. I'm so thankful for it. But it's a temptation all the time for me to try to look and sound pastoral. You know, it's a temptation every time I get dressed to come to church. Uh, you know, this is how I dressed at the photography studio. Is this fitting for a pastor? To, you know, this shirt doesn't have a collar. I'm a pastor now. I think I'm supposed to wear a collar. 
And especially when it comes to preaching. This is a very difficult line for me to walk because, you know, on one hand, I want to do well and I want to convey God's word clearly. And I want to keep you interested. You know, I don't want to look out and see people nodding off because I'm so boring. (laughs) So I work at it. I think of ways to communicate God's truth. But then I'm confronted with the fact that when Paul came, he came without eloquence. He spoke God's word in such a way that in another place, I failed to mention it earlier. Let's see if I can find it here. I probably won't be able to find it. But in another place, he mentions that he knows people have said something about him. And what people have said is that his speech is contemptible. Meaning basically, this guy's a terrible speaker. He's awful. And I think a big reason was he did not want to come with all this flashy fanciness to make people trust in him. And look around at churches, that happens all the time. He wanted to come in such a way that all they could see was God's power. That they wouldn't look at Paul and be like, now there is an impressive fellow. I'm going to do whatever he says. He wanted him to look at him and say, this guy's pathetic. But what he has to say seems to have some truth to it. This God is doing some amazing things through this little, weak, timid Paul. And I want you to know this is difficult for me and every other pastor in the world. And I share it with you, not for sympathy. I would love for your prayers. But because I don't think you're all that different from me. You know, all you folks are facing this way. And you see me, but I'm facing that way. And I see you. I don't think you're all that different from me. You know, when you get dressed to come to church. And when you're in conversation with your Christian friends. Does the thought come up? I need to sound more Christianly. I need to use the word blessed more often in conversation. Because that's how Christians sound. I must speak and look more Christianly because that's what we're to do. That's our identity. We're people who look like this and sound like this. The minute we start trying to act, keyword act, like Christians, we're missing the whole point totally. And that's why the world's so confused, I think, when they see Christians who are, are you know, I think from a genuine motivation, trying to act like Christians ought to act. And they skip the step of focusing on making sure they're living according to the fact that they're new creations. They skip that whole step. And they just try to act it out. And they're like, well, I don't know. This isn't really coming natural. But, you know, I've seen Joe Blow over here, who's a, obviously a strong Christian. He acts this way. I'm going to act this way, too. Because, you know, I'm a Christian. That's what we're, I'm supposed to do. And we do that, and we miss the point altogether. That Christ doesn't come... So we can act a certain way. He comes to create us totally anew. Totally new creations. A third thing I think we need to know is that we need to be clear about this in our minds. For our sake and for the sake of others who are outside the faith. It's not about rules and regulations. It's about transformation. About newness of life. Becoming a whole new kind of creature. Because it's really hard to tell the true Christians from the false Christians. We know from God's word that a vast majority of those who say they're Christians really are not. Because the vast majority of us have learned to look Christianly. But in the end, we'll know for sure. And I don't want any of us to miss the boat because we developed a lifestyle of looking Christianly. And we never stop to think, well, is this any of this coming from my heart? Or is this all willpower? Now, I want to scare you in the sense that I want you to think about this. But I don't want to scare you in the sense that I want those who are Christians to get really afraid that maybe they're not. 
because they still struggle. Until the end, when Christ comes, we will struggle. We are new creatures. But it's a process of learning how to live according to the truth that we're new creatures. We have the wings. We just got to learn how to use them. And people are in different places in that wall. But this is our identity. We are new creatures. And that is an amazing truth. Amazing. So much more... What's the word? So much more amazing and liberating than we are people who try really hard to be good. Forget all that. We are new creations. Now I want to conclude with just a brief word about what to do now. And luckily Paul spells it out really clearly. Look at 18 and 19. Now, all these things, all this stuff we've just talked about, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So in other words, we're made new creatures and that's the process of God reconciling us to himself. So what do we do with all this? We who are reconciled to himself through Christ, he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We are new creatures. That's who we are. And what do we do? We are devoted to the ministry of reconciliation. Our whole identity is wrapped up in the fact that God has reconciled us to himself. He's done away with his sin problems through Christ. He's made us new creatures. And now we're devoted to the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of seeing others step toward that same transformation. That's who we are. It's not the ministry of rule following. It's not the ministry of acting nice. It's the ministry of reconciling others to God. Like we've been reconciled to God. So once we come to grips with this identity as new creatures and all the freedoms and abilities that come with that, with the transformation, we are to do things and say things with the goal in mind of helping those around us to see Jesus more clearly, to step toward being able to accept Him as Lord and Savior, to step toward reconciliation with God. That's our goal on the earth. This is who we are. This is our goal. We're new creatures devoted to the ministry of reconciliation. Now, in a few minutes, we're about to sing a song of invitation. And I want you to know that this altar is open. It's open for all three types of people that I mentioned. For those who are new creatures and who are, by God's grace, living and learning to live more and more by that truth. To come forward and pray in any way you might want to. To pray for those you know who need this reconciliation. It's open especially to those who are new creatures who just cannot seem to quite figure out how to live according to that truth. You've accepted Christ, yet you still kind of resemble the old things that should have passed away. The altar is open for you to come and pray about that. It's open for the third type of person who's never quite understood this whole Jesus thing. Don't be ashamed of that. That's fine. I'm sure there's people in here who have never quite understood the whole Jesus thing. The altar is open for you to come forward and pray. Feel free to pray by yourselves. Feel free to, feel free to pray with each other. Feel free to come and get me and I'd love to pray with you. Feel free to speak to me after the service if you have questions about any of this. You know, and I just want to mention one more thing, kind of as an aside. Um, some folks have mentioned to me that it would be good to open the altar up at the end of services. And man, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I really do. 
But one thing I want to avoid is emotional decisions. People can get worked up into an emotional frenzy sometimes and accept Christ before they really understand it. So that's why I say I'm available to speak with after if you have questions. Don't feel like, don't get me wrong here, don't feel like you have to make this step immediately right now. Now there is urgency because you don't know what's going to happen to you when you walk out of these doors. But I'm here, other people are here if you have questions. You want to just talk this thing out. We're here. Okay? So that being said, we're going to sing our song of invitation. Feel free to come forward if you'd like to. And then I'll close this out in prayer. Thank you.